I love it when they make my job hard. <laughs> Man, they're so good. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and will be in verses 12 through 25. Again, that's Mark chapter 11, 12 through 25. You can find it in your pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. You can open the pew Bible and open it up on page 1007 to read along. Now, I know in the bulletin it says through verse 26. I know on the screen it says through verse 26. But in your pew Bible, verse 26 does not exist. It doesn't exist in my Bible as well. Um, If you have a King James version that you brought, uh, Mark Lopiano, Uh, It exists in that one. And so the reason it doesn't exist in uh, the ESV translation that we use here at church is uh, as as scholars have begun studying through the years, they've been able to, uh, to discern that the earliest and best manuscripts didn't have verse 26 in the Gospel of Mark, but that later manuscripts had it. So it wasn't original to the text. And, And so Um, it's not that Jesus doesn't say these words because what's contained in verse 26 is this. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Jesus did say those words, and we find them in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The scholars who are much smarter than me, who study this more than I do, have determined that it does not belong here in Mark in this scripture, however. And so we won't be reading it. So we'll go through verse 25. Um, because verse 26 just isn't in uh, this Bible. I want you to be aware of little things like that when they pop up. Because when we get to the end of Mark, when we get to chapter 16, it's going to be a big deal. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll just leave the surprise there. It's been there for 2,000 years. I'll let you find it on your own. Uh, no spoiler alerts here today. Um, and as as you're turning there and, and getting through to it, uh, I want to speak quickly to something else in Scripture and about God's very nature. Uh, I have come to find, as many of you have come to know and find as well, that God is patient, and he's patient with us, right? And, and, and this is a form of his grace, that, that as we are growing, that as we are maturing, part of this uh, following Jesus thing that we don't have all figured out right now is that God is patient with us. We just sang the song, I want to be less like me and more like Jesus, where in the song we sung and we confess that we mess up, that we don't always do uh, what, what God calls us to, that we aren't in fact perfect Christians. And it's God's patience. It's his, um, as scripture would call it, his loving kindness or steadfast love, that he is loving us through all of our growing pains, which is this growing in grace, that he continues to have his loving kindness and his patience with us. And so oftentimes what we need to be aware of is that very patience, because there are warnings um, within scripture about the way we are to live and the way we are to go forward. And and we're to heed those warnings, but we're also to understand them in view of God's patience and grace within our life, that that he is not done with us yet, that we continue to be refined, that we continue to be pruned, and that we continue to have the ability to grow more fruit. And so I just want that to be there for you this morning as we dive into this scripture. All right, let's dive into it. God's word here in chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if it could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O oh, holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been traveling through Mark for a long time. Um, the whole year we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And, and last week, we, we finally got to chapter 11, which is the final week of Jesus' life and ministry and, and contains the passion and his resurrection in these final six chapters. And so last week, we saw Jesus on, on enter into Jerusalem. We call it a triumphal entry. We celebrate it as Palm Sunday. We wave palms as they did. We shout Hosanna, crying out for God to save us. They threw cloaks on the ground. In indicating that Jesus is the Messiah, just not in the way they were looking for a Messiah. So this happens on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. It's actually not the last day of the week. It's the first day of the week. It's easy to get confused because it's such a fun day, Sunday fun day, right? But it is the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day. And, and so they went to Jerusalem from Jericho. It had been a long travel. They get there. They see the temple, and, he, and Jesus it tells us he sees the temple in, in Luke, and I believe Matthew maybe tell us that he weeps and cries over it, and then they return out of the city and go to Bethany to sleep for the night. So that's Sunday of the last week of Jesus' life. Now we're here on Monday, and it tells us on Monday they wake up, they're in Bethany, and they're headed to Jerusalem, and he's going to the temple this time. But Jesus is hungry. It tells us Jesus is hungry, and off in the distance he sees a fig tree in leaf. And then when he gets closer to it, the fig tree has no figs, for they weren't in season. 
but the fig tree has leaves on it, and, and it's one of those things that grows on the east side of the mount as they're heading into Jerusalem, so it's on the protected side, so they tend to leaf earlier than fig trees elsewhere. And an interesting thing about a fig tree is that when it leaves, that means the, the green leaves come onto it, it normally produces its fruit at the exact same time. So it bears fruit and its leaves at the same time. Now, Jesus comes up to this fig tree and there's no figs on it and he curses it. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this story alone, this encounter of Jesus with the fig tree is one of those hard ones maybe for us to always wrap our head around the very character and nature of Jesus. In fact, for some, like Bertrand Russell, he, he claims this scripture is one of his reasons he doesn't believe in Christianity, because this Jesus just doesn't make sense to him. But when we understand Jesus, we know Jesus to always be on purpose, that he is doing things for a purpose to, um, to bring light to it, to use it as teaching, but there is always a purpose behind what Jesus does. Now, it's easy for us to get um, confused in these moments and, and realize that Jesus is just such a shining example of love and grace and mercy, and Jesus is our friend, he's our savior, that we think all of these wonderful things about Jesus that when it comes to this fig tree not having figs, it seems that Jesus has a bit of irrational anger to him, that he's a bit short-tempered. Maybe he's hangry. Y'all are familiar with hangry, right? It's when you're both hungry and then angry because you're hungry. Snickers did a whole commercial campaign about this, about being hangry. And so there's this thought that Jesus got hangry, but then Jesus would have sinned in that moment. And that's not necessarily the case because Jesus behaves on purpose and what he does. And so there is the fig tree. Beautiful, in leaf. Its nakedness is covered. And then Jesus shows up and there's no figs. And so we always think of Jesus in that loving way. Forgetting also that Jesus will be the judge of both believers and unbelievers that Jesus is the Son of God who is both holy and loving. And those two things are constantly held in tension. That Jesus' judgment never feels loving, but that it will come, that he will come to judge both believers and unbelievers. And Jesus, well, he understood the assignment. And from a distance, like a great Monet painting, he sees the fig tree in leaf, and it looks wonderful that there's going to be fruits on it. But as he gets closer, there's no fruits. There's no figs on this tree. It was, by every account, a fraud, a fake, a pretender, a hypocrite of a fig tree. But there was no fruit, nothing, upon close inspection. It presented itself as healthy. It pretended to be a good fig tree, but when Jesus gets close to it, it is nothing of the sort. It bears no fruit. There's something to be said about looking good on the outside while remaining empty on the inside. And so from Jesus comes judgment towards that tree. 
And when we step back, when we fly at 30,000 feet over the scripture, we understand this to be a sign pointing to the withering and the cursing of Israel no longer being the sole chosen people of God, that they had stopped bearing fruit themselves. And it also comes as a warning to us as the church and a warning to us as individual believers as well. And so it was that after that fig tree, they continue on their journey to Israel, to Jerusalem. Remember, he saw the temple the night before. He, he was grieved by it. They returned to Bethany. Now he's in the temple. And, and the temple, Josephus tells us that at uh, Passover, Jerusalem would swell to over two and a half million people. In fact, he estimated in the year 65 AD that some 255,000 uh, sheep were, were sold for sacrifice, which would total more than 2.7 million people, he estimated, in Jerusalem that year for Passover making sacrifices, not counting for the non-Jews who were also in Jerusalem during that time. And so from the outside, Jerusalem, it's Monday of Passover week. Uh, the temple is bustling full of people. It looks very healthy. It looks like Israel has everything going on that it's supposed to. Sacrifices are being made. People are coming to temple. Passover plans are being made and finalized. Yet when Jesus gets there and gets inside upon further inspection, he has to clean it out. He flips over tables, and flipping over a table is no quiet, small act. Flipping over a table is a big deal, and he flips over chairs that people are sitting in. People who, who were selling things and buying things are kicked out. And, and in there, he's also refusing to let people use the temple as a shortcut to get to the other side. He said, no, you can't even bring stuff through here. This is supposed to be the temple, the place you meet God, and you have turned it from a house of prayer for all people because they were lined up there on this, uh, this, this wall for the Gentiles that was supposed to be a place where they could come if they were seeking after God and they weren't Jewish, that they could come and meet him in this place. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, and you've turned it into a den of robbers, a place where Thieves feel good about what they do. Well, the scribes and the chief priests hear this from Jesus. And as he foretold, they begin making plans to destroy him. He had enough for the day, and so they leave the city and head back to Bethany, the scriptures tell us. And that was Monday of Holy Week. On Tuesday morning, they wake up and they're headed back to Jerusalem. And on their way, Peter sees the fig tree that was cursed and points it out to Jesus and says, Rabbi, there's the tree. It's now withered to the root. And Jesus stops to teach. See, Jesus is never too busy to stop and teach us. Jesus is never too busy to stop and answer our questions. Jesus is never too busy to walk this road and this life of grace and mercy with us. And so there he stops and he teaches and, and he tells them about the power of prayer, but he also talks about the need of forgiveness. 
In fact, in uh, verse 25, it's written, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Forgive. There's no, well, he doesn't mean unless they've done this. There's no justification. There's no group of people you, we are commanded and not to forgive in this moment. If you have anything against anyone, forgive. So when we hear Jesus say that, we begin to learn the lesson of the fig tree. For you see, oftentimes we get confused and think that following Jesus means we have to have it all together. We have to look the part, we have to look like our, like our life is perfect, that it's not messy, that it's not riddled with sin, that we're still not struggling against our own flesh and desires and that the Spirit of God and I are not wrestling constantly over what I want to do and what he wants me to do. Paul even mentions this, but we somehow have gotten it in our head that no, we must look perfect on the outside so nobody can see the struggle. And here is this fig tree pretending to have it all together, pretending to be bearing fruit from a distance. Folks, you and I know that forgiveness is hard. When we talk about being more like Jesus, it's the forgiveness part that's the hardest. And we don't often talk about why. And the why is because we're in a battle for our heart. God's spirit is in our heart battling our flesh. And our flesh likes to be in control. And because of that, we love unforgiveness because it bears fruit for us. It bears fruit in our life. Now, we don't like to talk about the fruit that it bears because once we name it, we realize just how sour and dark and rotten it actually is, but that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to name the fruit of unforgiveness. See, unforgiveness, we like it because it gives us power. It gives us power over another person. They've wronged us, and now we have something over them. So now we have power in this relationship. Not only power, but we wield a weapon. Right? So the next time that something comes up, in order to get our way, we can say, well, remember when you did? Oh, that's such a powerful weapon that we hold on to. We put it behind the case. It says break in case of an emergency, but really it's just break when it's convenient. So we can get our way. And so unforgiveness, it, it gives us this power. It gives us this weapon and by doing so, it gives us a, a sense of superiority over the person, too. The person who wronged us, well, they, well, they did something really wrong, and I'm not going to be the victim. I'm going to be in a position of power, and I'm not going to be the weak one. I'm going to be strong because I have the weapon, and because I didn't do this, I am better than you. And so we feel good about ourselves, and we keep eating from this fruit of unforgiveness because we like the results that it's putting within our lives never realizing just how poisonous it is for us. And so now we have this power and this weapon and this superiority, and with this person in this relationship, 
they now owe us. They're indebted to us. They've got to make it right. So we are in charge of judgment and punishment. And, they, and, and, and it's not right until we say it's right. And we're not quick to say that it's right. Because once we do, we lose the power and the weapon and the superiority. And all of that together adds up to this fruit that we like, we want, we desire to be God of our lives. Judge, jury, and executioner for everyone else's. And it comes from a place to where that fruit that's born out of being in control, of having this power over others, of having them owe us something, of wanting to judge them and be sure of punishment that is in direct conflict with what the scripture says about who God is. Because it leads us to live a life that says God is not in control. It leads us to live a life that says God is not holy and doesn't demand holiness from others, so I will. It leads us to live a life that I can't trust God to be the judge. That really what we can't trust is we have the feelings more like Jonah. We don't want to go to Nineveh and share God's gospel because we know that he is so generous with grace and love towards us. He's going to do that for them, and we want them to suffer. We hold on to it. And as many others have said, holding on to this unforgiveness and this grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other will die. So when we begin to name why we like holding grudges and our unforgiveness, we begin to taste and see how sour and poisonous and dark and rotten that fruit really is. Not only is it dark and rotten and poisonous and sour, it's in direct conflict with what we proclaim about God and who he is and what he has done for us and who we are because of it. You see, Jesus says there's a much better way. Forgiveness. It's a much better way, but it's hard. It's hard because we feel weak. We feel out of control. We'll have to deal with our pain and the discomfort. We'll have to deal with not exacting revenge on someone, but yet fully trusting God to heal the relationship and help us and the other grow. See, it's a real difficult thing for a Christian, for a follower of Christ, to produce fruit while understanding that God's grace is so magnificent and he's so patient and kind with us and our faults, yet we're going to hold on to the faults against us by others. We begin to look like a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. Forgiveness is hard. That is true. 
forgiveness in its much better way will keep us from being trapped and kidnapped to the past. Forgiveness allows us to live free in the present. And it's the forgiveness we have in Christ that gives us the hope for tomorrow. And it is Christ who walks with us on that journey. Amen.